Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Politics in the Pulpit, a lectionary-based preaching resource designed to ask the provocative question of whether and how politics should appear in our preaching this week. My name is Raj Patta and I'm a minister at the United Stockport Circuit and I have originally come from India and have been researching on the relevance of faith in the public sphere and I really enjoy how to use scripture and what is the relevance of scripture in the socio-political context for our times. Each week I am joined by a guest from a different place and space on the pulpit and political landscape. And today I am really pleased to introduce my first guest as I begin my role as a host. Uh, and I would want to introduce Mickey, who is the Assistant Secretary of the Methodist Conference and the Connectional Ecumenical Officer for the Methodist Church. Mickey uh, is famous for her thoughts for the day on the BBC, and she comes with lots of resource and gifts. So I'm really pleased that she is with us. So I, I extend a warm welcome to Miki and uh, thank you very much for joining us on this episode, Miki, for this week. Thank you, Raj. It's really lovely to be with you and uh, uh, on, on what's quite a beautiful uh, winter's day down here in Wembley, where I live. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> so, so Miki, politics in the pulpit, and I wonder what that means for us and for you. So could you tell a little bit about yourself and whether or not you see yourself as a political pulpit practitioner preacher? That's a wonderful, wonderful alliterative question. Uh, a politics in the pulpit pr practitioner preacher. That uh, fantastic. Thank you, Raj. Um, yeah, I, I, I came to know the Methodist Church when I was a young girl of about twelve years old, and probably wasn't terribly political or switched on politically in those early years. But through the Methodist uh, Church's youth work at the time. Um, I began to learn about the world that we lived in and through, I remember my first really powerful political awakening in the church was going to an event during International Youth Year, which was 1985, which some of those listening to this definitely won't have been born then, but I was a young person and I met young people from the Methodist Church in South Africa who were living with the realities of the apartheid regime. And I began to understand that the gospel called us to pay attention. What, what did it mean to love our neighbours? And that wasn't just something, um, that wasn't a soft option to do with being nice to people who were like you or thought the same as you, but was actually about calling for systemic and political transformation uh, in the world. And that really helped me, that first encounter with people who were living with the horror and the reality of being systemized and systematically oppressed mm -hmm. helped me to understand that the call for justice in the Old Testament and in the gospel is something that we are called today to join in with. So mm -hmm. I think my preaching has always been political in its broadest sense mm -hmm. and narrowly political in sense of from time to time, 
challenging and speaking out against the structural injustices of the world we live in. So for me, there is no separation. And, and I'm hugely, hugely grateful to the opportunities I had as a young person to learn about what it means to to fully embrace the gospel. And uh, you can't separate that from politics. <clears throat> brilliant, brilliant, uh, Mickey. Uh, I mean, it's fascinating. Again, I was also when uh, looking at your books, one of your book is The Weaver, The Word and Wisdom, Worshipping the Triune God. Can you just briefly tell, tell us about how did you weave the word, the wisdom and the world? Thank you. Um, actually, the, there's a picture behind me, Raj, which if you've been reading that book will be familiar because it's the picture of the Trinity um, that my my Christian artist friend Denise uh, painted for the cover of that book. So uh, I'm very glad uh, that you mentioned it. But um, in, in that particular book, um, each Bible passage uh, is is rendered either a, a direct from scripture or, or a paraphrase. And then there's a reflection on it, often picking out um, how that passage relates to the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. And there are prayer resources and uh, worship resources. But at the end of each chapter, I hope you notice, there's a practical call for action. Mm -hmm. So it might be to do something with all we can about a very practical need or it might be to work with the local night shelter in meeting the needs in the local community or any other range there's a range of charities and partner organizations and actions that might involve writing to MPs so each chapter begins with scripture and ends with an action uh, that we can be called to so that for me was um, I couldn't write the biblical reflections without having a suggestion of something practical we could go out and do in response to it and for me that's the heart of our methodist identity that we we hold scripture and the realities of the world we live in together and hold them in a way that leads us from our faith and gives us a confidence um that we can actually make a difference in the world I mean, brilliant, brilliant, uh, Mickey, because I particularly like that phrase, weaving word and wisdom. And I wanted to add the, the other W, world. So word, mm -hmm. wisdom and world, weaving together is all about how we engage with the politics in the pulpit. So from your context, then, what would you want us to hear as key justice issues or political events in this given particular time? Well, we're in a very interesting time, aren't we, in terms of um, what's going on in uh, the media, particularly the last couple of weeks that we're hearing um, about politics. And I've been very struck that um, people seem most angry and frustrated with our political leaders at the moment, not because of uh, decisions they're making that are to do with their manifestos or to do with um, the economy or to do with uh, um, the way to run the country. We each have our own party political views on that. We each have our own views about what are the right things and the wrong things to do. But actually, there seems to be a general consensus that hypocrisy is a massive sin and one that we all feel we're being subjected to at the moment. There's um, a real sense, I think, I'm picking up from all sorts of people of feeling let down, disappointed, angry, frustrated, and hurt, actually personally hurt 
through the actions of those who are meant to be leading the country, setting a good example, um, showing wisdom, showing mm -hmm. some of those gifts of the spirit, perhaps, that we might expect in our leaders, self-control, not, not least being one of them. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a very turbulent time. And at the time when everybody's focus should be on how, how to fairly and equitably move forward from this time of pandemic to actually resourcing not just our own nations in the UK, but the whole world with mm -hmm. treatments and vaccines and health, good health advice. Yeah. And we're having half the news taken up with political leaders who seem to behave in a way that lets us all down. Yeah. yeah. It's a. It's been a very. It's hard to watch the news at the moment. I don't know about you, Raj, but I find myself getting very angry. No, I mean it's the same with me, Mickey. Because uh, unfortunately, people to whom we look up, if they don't live up to the values, I mean it's really unfortunate and it is uh, quite a shame. Uh, each week, uh, I ask our joint public issues team colleagues for a little roundup about, with their expertise, what they think might we want to keep an eye on the world this week. So some of their suggestions are, Mickey. they say about, as you've already touched, the integrity in politics, the party gate and the ongoing fallout, what political implications it might have for the government, and rightly, as you said, the anger that many feel at hypocrisy and double standards of those who were setting the rules, and the volcano and the tsunami in Tonga. Mm. So we especially remember people there the care crisis where local councils are providing only emergency care in many places due to staff shortages. So what are the values of care we should prioritize? The Russia-Ukraine border and tensions over there. Some striking figures in the Oxfam Global Inequality Report published today, which says 10 richest men double their fortunes in pandemic, while incomes of 99% of humanity fall. So we live in such a polarized world and the growing worries about the cost of living and the energy prices in particular, as the government considers options for tackling the issue. So they say it's going to be, there's going to be a fuel poverty in, in our context. Uh, and also the climate change and the climate crisis in which we live today. So uh, along with these political, sociopolitical issues of our times, uh, we also know from tomorrow, which is the 18th to 25th of January, Globally, Christians are called to celebrate the week of prayer for Christian unity. And yeah. this year, the theme comes from the Middle Eastern Council of Churches with the theme, we saw his star in the East. So it, this really gives us uh, the, the context in which we live today. And then how do we add on? How do we bring in? Uh, how do we engage with the scriptures at this point? There's yeah. so much there. And of course, um, in terms of, of Christian unity, um, part of, of my role, as well as being the assistant secretary at the Methodist Conference, is that I'm our connectional ecumenical officer. Mm. And so we'll, we'll, with many of us, be, be praying this week for the unity of the churches. And part of the ecumenical officer's role is to relate to our global churches our brothers and sisters in methodism right around the world and of course the people of tonga many many of them mm. are their identity is found in christ through the methodist church mm. and um clearly we're still waiting to hear news of some of the more remote and outlying islands that are part of tonga yeah. um and uh we'll be holding 
the people of the Pacific, wherever they are affected by this. I know Tuvalu, um, which is always in trouble uh, with rising tides, um, has been particularly hit. But um, we'll be praying with with our Christian brothers and sisters in the Pacific, particularly um, as 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 we work out, as we find out what the outcomes will be. And I'm sure um, we'll be sending solidarity grants um, through our global relationships team and also mm. through all we can to help in that situation. And that's mm. that that way of holding together, of weaving together um, our identity as parts of the body of Christ, which picks up one yeah. of our, our epistle reading uh, uh, from this Sunday about what does it mean to be one body in Christ. Um, but if if our focus is only on ourselves and the body, then our own, the body of Christ, we, we forget the rest of the world. And the Russia-Ukraine stuff, for those of us who hoped we'd got past Cold War politics and that remember in, in the early 90s when the Berlin Wall came down and when things seemed to move, it feels we've gone back to a more frightening place, to a place of less stability. And it's really difficult to speak into. And I think it's really difficult as preachers to know how to speak into that context, because very few of us are experts in these things. But we do know how to pray. And we know that many of our Orthodox Christian sisters and brothers will be living at the front line of that conflict, of that power struggle, of that sense of of um what russia's sense of feeling that it ought to be in charge of everything mm -hmm. and what does that do to to people in the ukraine and in other parts of that region so it's a it, we're on very tricky yeah. territory yes yes Mickey. so i mean with our metaphorical newspapers open now in one hand now as we open our bibles and this week's lectionary readings as you've already pointed from the epistles from 1 Corinthians 12th chapter. The other readings are from Luke and from Nehemiah. I mean, as I was working in a chaplain, see, uh, so when we read the scriptures, generally at the church, when we read, we ask, this is the word, when we, we close it by saying, this is the word of the Lord. But at the chaplain, see, the, it was interesting. Every time we read a passage and we, we concluded by saying, how is this the word of the Lord? Yeah. So perhaps I just want to start with that. Now, I mean, with the with the with opening the newspapers on one hand, and now opening our Bibles from Nehemiah, from Corinthians, from Luke, and from Psalm 19. How is this the word of God for you? Well, I have to go straight to Luke. Um, Luke's going to get most of my attention to today, Raj, because it's the passage. It's I mentioned the word manifesto before in terms of of politics. And often this is called Luke's manifesto. It's when Jesus goes to the temple, to the synagogue rather, in the town that he grew up. And I always think of this as, you know, if if you when I go back to my home church and they remember me as that teenager who wasn't very well formed, how the people in Nazareth were looking at Jesus and they remembered him with scabby knees and a runny nose and you know the kid who never sit, sat still and was always helping his dad with the with the woodwork mm. and suddenly he's there as a mature a te leader within his community, a teacher. He's got something profound to say. Mm. And they find that really challenging. And uh, those of you who know Luke 4, uh, you know, we know that it's where Jesus 
harks back to the prophet Isaiah and mm. talks about being the one that's been anointed to bring good news to the poor. Mm. You know, the one who brings healing, the one who brings liberation to the captive, mm. who the one who is transforming the world, not into um, some false utopia, but transforming a world that is grounded in creation, grounded in the Trinity, grounded mm. in that sense of um, justice that the Bible calls for again and again and again. And if as preachers we ever feel we don't have permission to be political, this is the text that mm. says the gospel is political. It's, a, it's not about a ticket to the best seat in heaven. It's about how we live now as people who are redeemed by God through Christ. How do we make that redemption meaningful? Because it means nothing if we are not transforming and working with God in God's mission in the world. Mm -hmm. So Luke, Luke 4 for me is the word of God every time you know and and those situations you described that jp outlined you know the state of the economy the the the, the complete sinfulness of 10 mm. the 10 mm. richest people in the world doubling mm. their wealth during a time of global crisis during the pandemic mm. it, it's i i almost i very rarely run out of words but I can hardly find words to describe how appalling that is mm. and how, you know, that again and again, Luke, Luke's gospel reminds us of two things. It reminds us of Jesus as a healer because Luke was the one that's considered the doctor. Mm -hmm. And it reminds us of God's hospitable grace. Luke is full of table metaphors, of parties, dare I say that this week, full of people being welcome to the parties, yeah. not the privileged, not the elite, not those who can send their staffers with a suitcase to a wine shop to get a wine, a, a case full of wine. It's the parties that let the people in, that say all are welcome. Everybody is welcome at God's table. Mm -hmm. And Luke 4 is in sense the epitome of that. It's the, it's the distilling down. It's saying Jesus is the one who calls us to a radical hospitality, to mm -hmm. a transformation. It speaks against that sinfulness of building barns to keep our wealth in. And then we need bigger barns and bigger barns. I mean, those who were already the 10 richest people in the world, what, what possible more do they need? You know, how many meals can you eat? How many cars can you drive? How many private jets can you fly? How many mansions can you have? This is ludicrous. This is anti-gospel. It's anti-Christian. You can tell it gets me a bit worked up. No, no but thanks. I think you are prophetic and fascinating to hear about uh, how God's hospitality in that we see in Jesus and how good news to the poor sometimes and always is bad news to the rich or to the greedy. So you are trying to bring that out when Jesus said the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor. So good news to the poor, I think I have always understood it as bad news to the rich. And I think it really calls and you are, you're calling that prophetically calling a spade a spade, which I think is very gospel and which is very political about the text. But Mickey, as I read this Luke chapter 4, uh, the, the verses that 
we understand as the Nazareth Manifesto, you know, I mean, those days Jesus went into the synagogue. And as he went into the synagogue, they gave him the scroll of Isaiah. So, I mean, as I was looking, do you think was it Jesus's political choice that he picked this Isaiah text from 61 chapter or was that electional reading for that for for his times? Is, yeah, that's a really interesting question because um, I've sometimes thought the Holy Spirit can work through the lectionary, even though at times as a preacher I want to throw the book out the window and say, "How can I possibly preach on this text?" Because Luke four is a gift, yeah, and likewise with the wedding at Cana last week, you know, yes. you know this yesterday, this last Sunday, yeah, it's you know th these are gifts to the preacher. There are some parts that are harder to preach on, um, so I don't know whether whether uh, whether Jesus chose to use that text from the prophet Isaiah or whether it was what was laid down. Mm. But I think whatever the text was laid down, Jesus would have been able to transform it into something that was God's word for that day. And mm. fortunately, someone wrote that down and recorded it so it can be God's word for our day. Yeah. Uh, there's something, um, I don't know about how you feel about it, Raj, there's something living about scripture mm. that it isn't. So when Jesus either chose or was given the gift of that Isaiah passage um he brought it alive he gave it he gave it more meaning than it had it was greater than the sum of its parts it became more than a few words on a scroll or for us in a book or on an ipad mm. it had a meaning beyond and jesus was able to inhabit scripture i think luke as the gospel writer wants to make it very clear to his writers that Jesus' identity is f founded upon the the history of God's story going back through the through the Hebrew scriptures. So yeah. Luke's quite clear that Jesus hasn't just appeared out of nowhere; mm. that he is rooted in his own tradition, his own history, the history of the people of God as the people of Israel understood themselves at that time. So that's a political decision. To, to place yeah. that happening in the synagogue using that scripture from the prophets. There's Luke mm. is not accidental in what he chooses to include. Mm. Um, so I think Luke was making, as with all the gospel okay. writers, political yes. decisions. Mm. No, which is good. But because as I read it, I thought Jesus, he, Jesus is the political preacher or the political uh, theological practitioner because... For me, as a, as he read this Isaiah, he he also redacted some of it, or if uh, Luke redacted it, because he did not just read word to word. He has given up the word vengeance. Yes. He says to preach the uh, ear of the proclaim the ear of the Lord. So maybe whoever has done it, it was a political act in terms of God in Jesus is a gracious God, inviting everyone to God's table and at Jesus's table. But I also thought this text's politicalness comes out when Jesus said after reading a text, he says in verse 21, today in verse 20, he rolled it and gave back and said, today these words have been fulfilled. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Yeah. So I think that's that's where Jesus makes it much more emphatic in trying to say in Jesus, these yeah. words are fulfilled. And he makes that political choice in, in making these words to be a fulfillment in his life. I, th I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think those people in Nazareth who were remembering the boy with the scabby knees and the runny nose at that point are going to be absolutely flabbergasted 
because you know the phrase, I know the phrase well they'll be using, who does he think he is? Mm. You know, what's so special about him? He's just Joseph's boy. He's just Mary's lad. Mm. And suddenly they are encountering, you know, this, this accomplished, poised preacher who is saying, and today in your sight, in your presence, these words have come true, not in some abstract way, but through me. In mm. me, these words have come true. Mm. Um, and if if through Christ, the good news is, you know, in Christ, the truth of the good news for the poor is made real. How do we, as Corinthians tells us, the body of Christ, mm. continue that work today? Mm. How do we continue to be good news for the poor today? Mm. Where is our role in releasing the prisoner? Of course, we know what happens next in the story, even though the, it's one of those decisions that the lectionary writers made that I think is wrong. They split yeah, up the next true. bit of the story because mm -hmm. when this jumped up little lad called, you know, Jesus, who used to be running around the village, um, speaks so profoundly and so honestly and so politically, the people don't take it you know they're not happy with this they end up threatening to throw him off the edge of a cliff yeah and you know how often does the prophet the one who speaks a word of truth into this public sphere and that might be even in a local methodist church yeah. how yeah. often how hard is it for us as people of faith as people who attend church who want to make sense of this how hard it is is it for us to hear the truth mm -hmm. to hear what's going on to hear that we might not maybe yet have got it right that there's still work to do mm -hmm. and uh and we know when a crowd feels that they're being got at mm -hmm. that they'll rise up and get bad-tempered very quickly and that that's a really dangerous mm -hmm. so not only is jesus being political but he's taking a risk yes and i think that is a relevance to all who really want to be this political pulpit practitioners because the cost of it is not always in india we say not garlands but it is it comes with some kinds of hard risks that you make and mm. the cost it is the cost of the discipleship so i think to all the hearers uh, we would like want to encourage that the cost of being a political public preacher or practitioner is not always a garland but it is also uh, taking some risks mm -hmm. And Mickey, you also have touched about the Corinthian text and the body of Christ. So again, again, Paul is trying to say the eye cannot be the full body or the leg cannot be the full body. And he speaks about this diversity of the different parts in the body. And again, body, body theology has been quite tricky and difficult, particularly when we understand the disabled body's theology. So what is your take in terms of diversity on one hand? And on the other hand, the disabled bodies and how do we understand body these days? I think that's a really um, challenging question for the church um, because, as you say, we haven't always, considering we're in a, a, a faith that's about embodiment, you know, the, the God embodied, God incarnate, God made flesh, we're really squeamish about flesh and the body. Um, and of course, Paul is talking about a metaphor of unity. But what's interesting, it's also a metaphor of church order. You know, Paul's quite keen to say some have the role of being the eye, 
and cannot say to the hand just because you're not an eye, you're not part of the body. Mm. So Paul is is in the way that Paul does and from his own um, background and experience is bringing order in, is saying there are those with different roles. Everyone within the body has a role. Mm. They're not all the same. If we all did the same thing, the organisation of the church would topple over. You know, it wouldn't function. Um, what I hope we don't then take that scripture on to mean is that we are prescriptive, that only certain types of people yes. can do certain roles. And into that play comes, you know, the Lucan hospitality about actually how do we make all feel welcome? How do we make all feel that they have a role to play and that that part is honoured? And that part is not disregarded. And that may be um, to do with disability. It may be to do with culture and ethnicity. It may be to do with sexuality. Um, but Paul doesn't say that any of the parts don't belong. They all belong together and they each have a role to play. And part of our Christian journey, part of our discipleship is to work out alongside others what is our role to discern mm -hmm who we are within the body of Christ and what gifts God has given us. Mm -hmm. um, the difficulty, of course, is the church, like any organisation, it's a human, mm. it's a human construct, blessed by God, you know, desired by God, but still full of flawed human beings. Mm. And sometimes we do say, because you are not like me, you do not belong. Yeah, because because you don't see the world through the same eyes I do, you do not belong, or because you're not willing to function in a particular way, mm -hmm. you do not belong. And so issues of identity, issues of gifting, issues of capacity, all those things come into play. Yeah. And sin gets in the way, division, mm -hmm. inability to recognise the value and the worth of the mm -hmm. other. Yeah. I think profound, profound, Mickey, because you brought in this word, very loaded word, belonging. Mm -hmm. I mean, who, who who defines where do we belong? But unfortunately, we have always defined as the abled bodies and things like this. So these distinctions have created, divisions have created distortions in the understanding of this broken body of Jesus Christ. So I think that really is helpful for us to think this week about belonging, about the broken body of Christ. We are part of the broken body of Christ. In the other two readings in Nehemiah's text, I mean, Ezra comes out and reads the, the scripture in the public sphere. I'm not sure how much uh, weight does it have if we do it similarly today. What does it mean to read the word in the public sphere? But one fascinating in verse 8 of chapter 8, uh, it's recorded. So they read from the book, from the law of God with interpretation. So they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So what I gather is text is important, context is important, and the interpretation is also important. So that people have a sense of understanding and there is some take-home message for them. It, it's it's maybe it's the first um, biblical reference to exegesis. Mm. It's about say you know taking a text and and breaking the text open mm. so that people uh, can better understand it and. We remember Jesus doing that on the road to Emmaus or when he arrived in Emmaus at the house. Um, you know, he he opened the scripture for them on the road and then in the breaking of bread, he was fully recognised. But that breaking open of scripture, that um, being the, the teacher, 
the the so the the prophets speak out and hold up a mirror to mm. people um and offer back to them an image of themselves and perhaps how god sees them but also can paint a picture of how god wants the world to be yeah. and so ezra is painting a picture for the people of israel about how god wants the world to be i think you you said um at the beginning of mm. this little bit about um in the public sphere and i think that's a really profound question certainly for a denomination where sometimes in our uk context we feel like you know how do we get the media's attention how do we get anybody's attention um in terms of coverage you know it's hard yeah. enough um for any any faith organization and and we know that the established church in the country tend to get the first stab mm -hmm. at getting a public profile and then maybe the catholics and so on and so on and 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 we kind of down the pecking order a bit mm -hmm. and it can feel really frustrating but i think one of the ways to be in the public sphere breaking open god's word is to live and work in the public sphere yeah. so when christians are working in health in education in the military in politics in whatever sphere in caring in councils in you know wherever it is to be a christian presence there is to open up the word of god really? without ever mentioning the bible mm. it is about how we live as the body of christ in the world and how we vote and how we spend our money mm. how we choose you know what what yeah. What do we choose to buy? What do we choose to eat? How do we look for eco-friendly fuels in the face of so many energy companies closing down, especially the ones who were doing the eco mm -hmm. stuff? You know, some very everyday, day-to-day -day personal decisions yeah. affect our ability to speak into the public sphere. Mm. I mean, which, which is really good. You have brought in again this aspect of ecology and the word of God. And Psalm 19 says, the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims God's handiwork. So when I read this psalm, I thought ecology, the whole creation as the word of God. We see God and God's sparks of the divine in the entire creation. So how do we understand if creation is the word of God for our times today? By destroying it, we are destroying the word of God, the sparks of the divine. So that's, that's yeah. a challenge for us, yeah. It is. It's a huge challenge. It's a challenge personally as personal disciples, um, um, a challenge preachers might want to remind congregations right. of from time to time. But it's also a challenge for us as a church. And at the conference last year, there was a decision that um, instead of waiting till 2040 for the church to become carbon neutral, we made a decision that we would try and be carbon neutral by 2030. This comes at an enormous cost mm. and those budgets haven't even been written yet. Um, and, you know, there are big, really serious decisions to make about what does that look like? What does that mean? And we've set down a marker. We've drawn a line in the sand and said, this is something yeah. we want to aim for. And, um, and in all sorts of ways, we want to move towards that. But that's not just for those who are involved in the uh, connectional team. Yeah. That's for the whole church. How does each local church look to be carbon neutral, look to be actually not just not damaging God's world, but actually restoring God's world? Because, you know, we're called to be 
part of that creation that's so beautifully described in Psalm 19. Yeah. You know, the, the imagining the firmament of, you know, the whole of the heavens and the earth below and what that means. Yeah. In And it's a beautiful poetic imagery. But actually, how do we take seriously our role as carers and co-creators with God of yeah. creation? I don't know if anyone, um, I'm sure people watching have been watching David Attenborough's Green Planet um, on a Sunday evening. It's a lovely way to kind of end end the weekend. And always David Attenborough manages to get some word in mm. about the state of the planet and, and how how many species have died, how many plants have are extinct and so on. Um, and that's just one of the one of the resources preachers can use when wanting to talk to talk with congregations about um, our our calling to be co-stewards co and creators of creation. Um, it's a gift that yeah. program. Uh, th thank you very much, uh, Miki, for the fascinating conversation. And I think this week, next week's texts are all fully about how how to make best of our reading and how to live out, live it out. The call is now for us: how best can we live it out? What we have read and what we have reflected, and it's a huge challenge. But I'm sure our listeners will engage and try to be inspired to see how best can we make a difference by reading the scriptures, because it's not just reading, but it is reading interpreting and then trying to put it into practice which is a huge huge challenge and a call for all of us so on behalf of the joint public issues team mickey i would like to extend a, a heartful thanks for this fascinating conversation a brilliant insights and for your wisdom and for your theology so i'm sure uh, people our listeners will be blessed by this conversation so thanks to the rest of you for joining us and there are people who have been asking questions which we are trying to do beforehand. I mean, one of the questions that we have received is, how do we understand this manifesto as a political metaphor? And I think you have dealt to say this text is a gift, and yeah. there there can't be any better way than. Uh, so I think we are we are encouraging people to bring in their questions beforehand. So uh, thank you once again for your wisdom you and your theology. It's so, been lovely being with you. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Mickey. So if you, if you have enjoyed this episode of Politics in the Pulpit, please leave us a review whether you, wherever you listen to your podcast and share this episode with your friends. We know that our listeners are a passionate and knowledgeable crowd and we would love to build a community of mutual learning and encouragement around the podcast. So this series, we are asking for your questions ahead of each episode and to hear your thoughts afterwards. And the best place to join the conversation is on our Twitter page at pulpits underscore politics or using the hashtag politics in the pulpit or on our Facebook community, which you can access through the Joint Public Issues team's Facebook page and their website, jointpublicissues.org.uk. So, uh, so please let us know your thoughts on Twitter or on Facebook. So we go all in peace and let God's grace go with us. So let's go into our politics and our pulpits with a blessing at this time. May you be anointed with God's spirit as you bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, help people to see the world truthfully and let the oppressed go free. Amen. Amen. <laughs>